According to the World Health Organization, globally, one in seven 10 to 19-year-olds experiences a mental disorder, accounting for 13% of the global burden of disease in this age group. Depression, anxiety, and behavioral disorders are among the leading causes of illness and disability among adolescents. Suicide is the fourth leading cause of death among 15 to 29-year-olds. The consequences of failing to address adolescent mental health conditions extends to adulthood, impairing both physical and mental health and limiting opportunities to lead fulfilling lives as adults. Most mental health concerns, especially for emerging adults, first present in primary care, placing them in a critical role for addressing these concerns. I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Bonnie Engelbart, primary care physician, in this sixth episode in my series on emerging adults with mental illness. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Bonnie, so good to see you. Thanks for joining me. I love that we can do this. Just so everybody knows we're friends and... I'm taking advantage of our friendship to mine your experience and skills. I've been interested recently, really, I've been interested for a long time in young adults and healthcare for young adults. A couple of years ago, I did a series about young adults who were transitioning from pediatric medical care to adult medical care. And that was fascinating. It's so different. And when I worked at Boston Children's, the adolescent community of people that were being treated were very outspoken. And I learned a lot just sitting back and listening to them. So anyway, why don't we just start with, um, like, when did you first realize that health was fragile? I think the first time it was really obvious to me was my last year of medical school. I spent two months in Swaziland, um, which is a small country in the middle of South Africa. And a very poor country with very limited healthcare resources. I went there with a few other medical students and some residents and a physician who was supervising all of us. But as medical students, we were really thrown in and put in charge of things that it would never be 
given to medical students in the United States. I was in charge of the men's medical ward in the hospital for the two months that I was there. And the medical conditions that we were seeing were just things that you wouldn't see in the United States. Malaria, an enormous number of people, they were estimating possibly as high as 20, 25% of the population was HIV positive at the time. And so we were seeing people with end-stage HIV in the hospital, just essentially. And you were in charge. And I was in charge. And, (laughs) And tons of people with injuries from car accidents Mm -hmm. and unsafe working conditions and just all these things that wouldn't happen quite as frequently in the United States because we had better preventative care for infectious disease. We had Mm -hmm. more rules around driver's licenses and traffic control. And we had OSHA to regulate working conditions. And so I think that was really the first time that I was aware of how fragile life was. So could you tell us briefly about your practice? Sure. Yeah. So I work for Cambridge Health Alliance, which is an organization that has two hospitals in the Boston area um, and several primary care clinics that are... um, based in the community. I am the medical director for one of those primary care centers. It's located in the city of Everett, which is a city of about 50,000 people just outside of Boston. It's largely an immigrant community. And I'm a family doctor, so I see people from birth through death. I do a spectrum of ages. Okay. And so when you think about the young adults in your practice, like, what do you see that you're thinking, oh, goodness, there might be mental illness here? Unlike a pediatrician, I am seeing patients, uh, as they progress from being Mm -hmm. children to adults, they don't leave my care, nor do they initiate my care at that transition from childhood to adulthood. They can stay Mm -hmm. with me. Yes. Um, So I am seeing them in that. uh, Yeah. As they go through that transition and for all ages, we're doing mental health, developmental and then mental health screeners. Okay. Um, It's once a year. It's not at every visit, but we have a standard screening form for teenagers called the PSC that includes questions about depression, anxiety, attention problems, Mm -hmm. uh, substance use. The PSC 17 pediatric system checklist is a brief questionnaire that helps identify and assess changes in emotional and behavioral problems in children. And then when 
kids turn 18, we transition to a form called the AWQ, mm-hmm. which screens for depression, anxiety, and substance use. So you're dealing with mental health, emotional health, physical health, and in our system of fragmentation. So it seems like as a family doc, you're dealing with all of it. Yes. But then you end up referring people out when you start feeling like, okay, this is a little more than I can handle. And then what happens when you when that ends up being mental, anxiety, depression, harm, um, whatever, how do you decide it's time? It's more than I, I can do. Certainly as a family doctor, a lot of the care that we provide is around mental health and for depression and anxiety those are definitely conditions that I would be managing and I wouldn't refer out certainly not as an initial step. I think the times when I would refer out would be if I've prescribed a medicine and I've been adjusting medicines and trying different things and the things that I'm trying are not working. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously if someone is suicidal I'm going to be sending them to the hospital for people with really severe depressive symptoms. I often will try to refer, but the reality is that there aren't adequate resources. And so even with people who have pretty significant illness, I'm often the one that's carrying that care for months before they can access mental health care for things that are a little more complex, like bipolar or schizophrenia, schizoaffective, something like that. We do have what are called e-consults. And so I can take a history, do my best job to, to ask all the appropriate questions and then share that chart with a psychiatrist electronically. Mm. They'll review the history that I've collected. And within a week, they'll get back to me with recommendations about medications. And is that within Cambridge Health? It is. It so is. That's, a, that's a nice feature. It's a very nice feature. Yes. It doesn't give me help in the moment. There's no way for me to page a psychiatrist or get help right then and there when I'm seeing the patient. Mm -hmm. So there is always this delay. Right. Which generally is okay, but there are some patients who really are in quite a lot of distress. Mm -hmm. They're not suicidal, so sending them to the hospital is not appropriate. But you also would like to do something that day, and you really can't. If access to resources is limited, Mm -hmm. um, and and then it seems like you have to then pull in any resources you can, and you're blessed that you have this e-consult resource. But then there's 
resources of the family, the school, the peers, your staff. How do you end up trying to pull together a team? So it's somewhat adequate. I think that pulling together a team is pretty tricky. For someone who has turned 18, they technically, the care that they're getting is confidential. And unless they've given me permission to involve the parents, I'm not allowed to. And for some young adults, they want their parents involved. And then I would call them or ask them to come to a visit. Um, But for some of these patients, I would say the majority, they really don't want their parents involved. Right. And so that part of the team is not, it's not there. In terms of involving teachers, I, it's almost never um, the case. There may be communication with a guidance counselor at school, mm-hmm. but even that can be very tricky. Consents have to be in writing. Mm-hmm. We have to fax the consent to the school. Faxing is unreliable. And then you just have to make time to reach out to the school and hope that the person you're reaching out to is actually available. Right. There ends up being a lot of phone chase yeah, um, and missed connections with the schools. It must be a, have a toll on you and your colleagues or your staff that resources are so limited. It definitely does. It definitely does. It, yeah, it feels very heavy. It feels like you're not doing enough. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's a tough spot to be in. It is. So if you're in, in if somebody has diabetes or they have a, oh God, I'm going to just say more acceptable issue. (laughs) Again, I don't know how to talk about this stuff. We're not a society that embraces mental illness. It's obviously because our resources are so limited, there's stigma attached to it. But it would seem then that you're dealing with either you don't have the resources or sometimes you do, but the continuity of care across those resources being the family practitioner, is there like a particular challenge even when you're successful in finding resources to maintain continuity of care with young adults who have mental illness? Um. I think there can be. I mean, if I, if someone has really complex mental illness and they're 
fortunate enough to be well connected with a therapist and a psychiatrist. Um, I'm not keeping up with the minute to minute details Mm -hmm. of what's going on with their mental health. Even if that care is within my organization, the therapy notes are often kept private. I can't read them. The psychiatry notes I could read, but they're not automatically sent to me. And, you know, I would only become aware of the latest details if the psychiatrist reaches out to me or the patient reaches out to me. And that causes me to look at their chart. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, if their mental health care is outside of our organization, it's even less private practice or in a community mental health center, then I wouldn't have any information from them. So if you could wave your magic wand, what would you want to see? So that, or what would you want to have, or what could help this? Really, we need more bodies. We need more therapists, we need more psychiatrists, we need more case managers who could help with referrals or being the Mm go-between between the primary care doctor and the mental health providers the go between between the primary care doctors and the schools or whatever other agencies are involved. Mm-hmm. I think that would be tremendously helpful. Right. Does your organization like have unfilled positions, support positions? Yes. Okay. Yeah many positions for therapists and psychiatrists that are unfilled also unfilled positions for we have they're called care partners and they are um, like a peer support kind of peer support they can do some coaching around like self-care or some relaxation exercises Mm. Sleep hygiene. Um, sometimes they can some behavioral activation, encouraging patients to exercise or spend time with friends or um, all of these self care things that that help with mood. Currently, we have a mental health care partner for adults. The child role has been unfilled for several months. We just found out that someone was hired for that role, but it'll be a while before that person starts and is trained and is fully up and running. Wow. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with A Bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the 
Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. What should we be talking about in this area that we haven't? Like, what do you think people should know from the primary care point of view about young adult mental health, mental illness? Um, It really is a complex time. Mm-hmm. Um, being and, a young adult, being a young oh, adult, yeah, 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 and right, it, it technically they're adults when they're eighteen, but that doesn't right. mean that they know how to navigate the healthcare system. Um, there's a lot of growing up that still has to happen, right, and that they're suddenly on their own in terms of managing this complex condition and trying to access resources, mm-hmm. healthcare providers. It's, it's a problem. It's a very vulnerable time. Yeah. And so I think to me, that's the, the area that feels the most problematic or, yeah. or particular for this group of patients. How long have you been practicing? I finished residency 20 years ago. Okay. So how do you think what you're seeing with young adults is changing over those 20 years. That's a tough question. And I, I think it comes up far more often, not just because we're screening more. And I think, I think there actually is less stigma. Around. Okay. It's almost more normalized. And so great that they're bringing it up and they're asking for help, but there isn't enough help. Yeah. And it, it ends up falling on the primary care doctor because there oh, aren't yeah. enough mental health resources. It feels... And I've learned a lot about medication management in the past 20 years, but I'm not a therapist. I'll never be a therapist. (laughs) I'll never be a substitute for a therapist. And that's, that's a key part of treatment for people. And it's very hard to access that. There just are not enough therapists. Do you think that that young adults who are suffering and not getting treatment go the self-medication route more think, often. And then you have to deal with that. Yeah. That there a, are substance issues on top yeah, of it. Yeah. I think it's true. It's true for all, all ages really. All ages. Yeah. That people self-medicate. But I suppose it makes sense that a, like a teen or someone in their early 20s would think a little bit less about the consequences of mm-hmm. um, alcohol use or right. marijuana use or might dabble a little bit in opiates and quickly discover that they're addicted. So, yeah, I think that it definitely 
is a coping mechanism for people who are not accessing mental health care. Uh, I'm almost done. And, but I, so what I'm doing is I'm working on a series about young adults and mental illness. And I'm, I'm recruiting some people who have recently been young adults Mm -hmm. and talking to them about their experience. I really want to ground this in lived experience. Yeah. What do you think I should ask that would be of help to you? I guess I'd be curious to hear how how comfortable it is for them to share these concerns with their primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear if they did bring up concerns with their primary care doctor and how well it was handled. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I guess I'd be curious to know if are there a lot of young adults who wish that their primary care doctor had asked them more or discovered this about mm-hmm. them, but they didn't ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't know. I'm scheduling with a couple of people who administer young adult mental health programs. Mm-hmm. So that's the providers that there aren't enough of. Yeah. What should I ask them? I guess it, obviously, I know a lot of those agencies are trying to hire and can't fill positions. Um, But I, I do think about the model of mental health care and that there are inefficiencies in it. I think a lot of traditional psychiatrists will see a patient every single month. And maybe that's, that's probably not necessary for someone who's pretty stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a visit that could probably go to a new patient. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious to hear if the agencies, are they looking at ways to take care of more patients mm-hmm. um, to expand what they're able to do or the right, number of right. people they're able to reach. Um, you know, are they trying to innovate? Yeah. That's an interesting one. Doing it differently. Let's just accept that we don't have enough bodies. Right. And so more bodies in a way is a policy thing. You know, how to get people in school, how to pay for school, mm-hmm. how to pay people more yes. so that they want to do the do work. work. Um, and not just do that work in private practice, but do, right. it, do yeah. it for Cambridge Health Alliance or do it for the Community Mental Health Center. Yeah. I'm taking care of people who maybe they have private insurance, but the the thing with private insurance is it frequently doesn't cover the full cost of mental health visits. Right. It'll cover yeah. a percentage. Yeah. 
or a, a certain limit. And then you're, as the patient, you're left to cover the rest of the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't do that. I've definitely had some teens and college student age kids who are still on their parents' insurance who haven't been able to seek the mental health care that they need because the copays and deductibles on their parents' plan, it, it's too expensive. And to see a therapist every week or two, they just, their families can't afford that. 65% of the patients in my office don't speak English as a first mm-hmm. language. Oh my goodness. They really would greatly prefer to have a therapist who they can speak to directly. Standard medical visits, they often will use interpreters and they can do that for therapy, but I think it really disrupts the process. It's like a very intimate conversation and to have a a go-between in that conversation I think really can be disruptive. That's like a whole nother permutation of trust. If there's this third person in the room who's translating, oh my goodness, it's, oh. Uh, So that's really a a significant problem in terms of patients accessing care. Wow. And then culturally, depending on which country patients are from and how they were raised and their beliefs around mental health. Some teens and uh, young adults, they might have parents who don't really believe in mental health care or they, they don't believe that mental health problems exist. And so their parents won't allow them to engage in that care. And the minute they turn 18, they will engage in that care because now they're in charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a whole other issue that I see. Bonnie, thank you so much. You're welcome. In this sobering conversation, Dr. Bonnie describes the systems of referral, consultation, and stretching resources created by Cambridge Health Alliance in the face of scarcity of resources. As she says, there are not enough bodies. We see thoughtfulness, frustration, and caring as we peel back and explore layers. I'm taken by the diversity of culture, language, and geography affecting CHA's solutions. Does each health system across the country strive to create hyper-local band-aid solutions? Could a national policy approach exist to serve emerging adults and their primary care docs for the entire country? Or can we nationally support hyper-local strategies? What a messy stew. Want to know more? I suggest the National Alliance of Mental Health, Kids, Teens, and Young Adults, the White House Fact Sheet, 
improving access and care for youth mental health and substance abuse conditions. And the American Academy of Family Practice article, Managing Behavioral Health Issues in Primary Care, Six Five-Minute Tools. Links in the show notes. Next, you'll read, hear, or watch a 30-second clip from our next and seventh episode in the series, Emergency Medicine. We're not trained for this. I think where we struggle is when you turn the ER into more of an inpatient facility and you keep behavioral health patients or mental health patients who are in crisis in the emergency room for weeks at a time, we're just not great at that. And we're getting better, but the reality is we're not docs that train for that. The nurses who are in the ER are not nurses that came into the ER with the idea that we're going to, we're going to round on behavioral health patients every day. We're going to keep them do therapy. We're going to titrate medications. All this stuff is a little bit not over our heads, but I think is new to us. I host, write, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and manages dissemination. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. Thank you.